Welcome to the Law Matters Podcast. This is part two of an important conversation I had with recently retired family law accredited specialist Rachel Woolbank. I'm Catherine Henry of Catherine Henry Lawyers, and if you missed the first part of this interview, I'd suggest starting with that. In the first part, I talked to Rachel about why she found herself in this area of law and her own personal story of embracing her authentic self and advocating for others on their own journey within family law matters. In this second part of the conversation, we turn our awareness to children's access to special medical procedures. I hope you enjoy this very important conversation with Rachel Woolbank. Well, I'm very keen to talk about Rick Kevin and how that all came about. That really put you and transgender, transsexual issues from a legal perspective on the map. I was the only lawyer who'd ever transitioned back when the clients, uh, Kevin and Jennifer, as they were called in the case, he was a man of transsexual background. He'd always experienced himself as a male. He met Jennifer and he'd undergone, he'd undergone an oophorectomy. He'd also... Under- Which is removal of an ovary. Yes, ovaries, yes. Ovaries. And he'd also undergone hormonal treatment and he'd undergone a double uh, mastectomy. So these are the physical steps this man had taken in order to bring his body into harmony with his sense of self as a man. And a lot of people think that the law made people do it. There was no case that said Kevin had to do this at this time. This is what people do in order to get some peace of mind. It's the reason I underwent genital reassignment surgery, not for someone else's sake, but for mine. And for the very practical reason, I wanted to go swimming, I wanted to do all sorts of things, and I didn't want to be identified as as male. I wanted to be identified as female. And what was Kevin's issue in the case? Kevin married Jennifer. They approached me just for some help because they'd written to the Attorney General of the Howard government at the time, and they'd received the advice from his office that they were only ever going to be seen by the law as two women, and that if they married, it would be illegal and they could get into trouble and they were terrified. We're talking about 1998, Mm -hmm. 1999. Right. And I found a marriage celebration. So the years of the Howard. Yeah, he was very strong at the time. Anyway, they they felt very powerful. You could tell the government felt felt they were on solid ground. My relation to this communication written by Jennifer and Kevin. The letter to to Jennifer and Kevin. There was a correspondence went back and forward Mm -hmm. with the Attorney General's office. And they were terrified as a result of it. They felt it was unfair because by that time there was talk of people being able to be recognised in their affirmed sex. They were seeking to have their marriage recognised. Well, they hadn't married yet, but they wanted to get married and they wanted to have children by assisted technology. They wanted to follow that path. And Kevin worked as a man. He, everyone, his whole family and her family and all these workmates and relatives treated him as a man. And they just saw him as a man, and they they expected to be able to get married. Bear in mind there hadn't been a lot of talk about anything else at that time. Uh, There'd been a a case in New Zealand where an affirmed female person had been approved to marry as a female, but that was only because the judge said she'd done all the physical steps necessary to mimic or to, that uh, that wasn't his word, to imitate uh, a female anatomy. Whereas Kevin hadn't had a, a penis 
uh, created or phalloplasty done. And, and there'd just been a case in the UK failed where they'd run it on social justice and a social justice basis. Anyway, these people contacted me and they said, what do you think? And I said, well, I looked at things and I thought, there's been no case on this in Australia. So it's, uh, it's open ground. And I was aware of the UK case, which was Corbett and Corbett, uh, a case decided in 1970 that everyone at that stage, the law seemed to presume that would apply in Australia. And I didn't think it would. I thought it, I thought it was a weak case. Uh, strangely, the judge in that had some medical background, but it seemed to only uh, give him confidence to apply his own prejudices to the decision rather than inform the decision. I said, I think it's worth seeking a declaration of validity of marriage. And, and that was your advice? Yes. And so to do that, they had to get married first, and they were able to find a celebrant who'd do that. I briefed counsel about it, and he, he seemed to support it. And so they got married. And then we, we filed this application, and the Attorney General joined, uh, and it came before Justice Chisholm. And I also had help from, in running the case, from Teresa Anderson, who was a, a barrister in Sydney, who was also the only other lawyer I knew who had, who had transitioned in practice. So we were the only two lawyers in Australia we knew of who experienced the same condition as our client. But she didn't want to run it. She, she, she worked in the field of employment law, but she was, you know, really a lawyer's lawyer, which was very helpful when dealing with um, constitutional issues and other things like that. Anyway, so the legal question was, what was the meaning of the word man in the Marriage Act at that time, which at that time was said a, a marriage was a, 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 an agreement or a contract uh, to, uh, between a man and a woman. So how did you determine the meaning of the word man? And we argued successfully that it was the normal, everyday meaning of the word, whereas uh, the, the government was arguing it was a historically religious, cultural-based kind of restricted meaning. So uh, the battle lines were then drawn really between a um, an inclusive application of the Marriage Act that sought to uh, include everybody in the population and all its diversity in it and say, well, you've got to fit you into one of those two categories, you know, or, or an exclusive vision of the Marriage Act, which would have followed the English case of Corbett, that actually said people who have undergone that kind of surgery or intersex people don't fit, so they can't get married at all. To what degree did the UK decision of Corbett play into the decision in Reekhaven? Well, it was the primary decision that um, there were two decisions we had to overcome and that the Commonwealth thought would succeed as a precedent. Corbett, which had been applied in America and Europe and everywhere, it, it, it was the primary common law precedent. Mm. And the other one? And the other one was an Australian case that had followed Corbett, and it dealt with an, a man who was an, had an intersex condition, and it said he couldn't marry at all because of his intersex condition. And where had that case? And he'd had no. surgery, he'd had surgery to confirm his maleness. So he'd had the surgery he could have to enable him to, because he identified as, experienced himself to be male, so he'd had the surgery necessary to that. So his genitalia were no longer uh, disparate or, or diverse that at the time he applied to the court to marry as a man. And still he was knocked back by the family court on the basis uh, following Corbett 
on the basis uh, that he didn't fit into the criteria. And Corbett said, Corbett basically said, which sex you are for the purpose of the law is to be determined at birth and not, can't be varied later. And that uh, at birth, if you have male genitalia, then... Um, the way it's going to be. Yeah. And if you've got female genitalia, that's the way it's going to be. And if you've got something in the middle, if you've got a d d diversity of genital formation, then it's too hard. It's too hard for us to determine. We don't have to determine the case, but we think it's unlikely that you would fit into the categories of man and woman that required to be for the the English Marriage Act at that the stage. The purposes of the Marriage Act. Yeah. Now, this yeah. And so in approaching this case, I wanted to do it the, a way, in a way that pleased our client. So we didn't go down the track they went in the English case of having him undergo all these genital tests and all these examinations and, and, and the chromosomal signatures being done and, uh, and all of this. We turned up to court saying, look, here's a raft of expert evidence that, and historically, except for Corbett, all the European cases dealing with this have said diversity is the norm. It is not the exception. So there's so much diversity in, in nature and so much intersexual diversity in nature, and it's the same in mankind. And you can't rely on chromosome tests. Whatever the science might say this moment is likely to be unreliable. And at that time, I was able to introduce evidence too that for the Sydney Olympics, they'd given up on chromosomal testing of athletes because there were simply too many female athletes with Y chromosomes. So they had to throw that out as a, as a test. So this diversity is the norm seen. The thrust of the factual argument. Right. And then, and then the thrust of the legal argument was that the Marriage Act was meant to be beneficial to people. It was not meant to divide Australians. It was meant to be inclusive piece of legislation. None of the reading speeches... But that continues to this day? Yeah, well, it's, it's been amended since then, of course, to in, it, not to require a marriage between a man and a woman. Mm. But it's still important to people who, like me, and others who are affirming a sex different to that to which they were signed, signed at birth, because we don't want to be married as a same-sex couple when we don't see ourselves as such. Yes. And so this case, Ree Kevin, and some subsequent cases have now confirmed that people, that the surgery, the stray that Kevin carried out, although imperfect, is not meant to be perfect. It's rehabilitative for him. It's really uh, what Justice Chisholm so brilliantly said was, you have to take the whole picture of the person into account, how he's seen how he sees the world, how he experiences the world, what he's done, what efforts he's done. Everything's taken into account in a holistic assessment of does this person fit into the man category or the woman category? But it's the job of the law to fit them in. It's so the, the decision of, of Justice Chisholm was favourable to your client? Yes, and the and Commonwealth appealed, of course. Yes, and um, then tell us what happened. Well, I went before the full court then, and we by that time when you say you went, you're you've got a legal team. No, I I am the legal team with my law student Clark. We are the legal team. Wow, because we're legally aided. You know, you haven't got a lot of money, and by that time, frankly, I wouldn't have trusted any barrister, and a lot of better lawyers than me, but. I wouldn't have trusted anyone else to have had their head around the science. Yep. Because we were very heavy with experts. We had the best medical 
and scientific evidence from around the world. We hadn't relied on social justice. We'd relied on the experts. evidence. Yeah. Is this all, while this is going on, attracting a lot of interest around the world? With regard to lawyers who are interested in this subject, yes. And, um, and anyway, we were successful on appeal before the full court. As an example of a successful, because there was a lot of argument, it's hard to imagine now, but there was a lot of argument about Kevin not having a penis. That was very important to the Commonwealth. And I pointed out if a Vietnam veteran had been wounded or stepped on a mine and had lost his genitalia, external genitalia, and came back to Australia, would you, would you unman him? Would you say, you're not a man anymore? And we really attacked the religious arguments. And they, But they were big. They occupied a lot of time. Hmm. There was a lot of even, you know, biblical stuff. So that's why we were kind of heavy in the science. The expert evidence was, of course, that the brain differentiates as to sex the same as the rest of the body does. And so uh, there's a biological reason for someone thinking they're this or thinking they're that. So around the country, though, like leaving aside some of the issues that arose in Victoria, how was Kevin and the decision of the full court treated and seen by other lawyers? Was it a I mean, it's certainly a very significant case. A lot has been written about it. You know, you're regarded as a trailblazer as a result of the work that you did in that case. The feeling of being successful in that case really made my whole decision to keep going myself and to practice as continuing to try to practice as a lawyer worthwhile. I just completely uplifted by it, of course. And then there was the media blitz, which was another thing to get used to. And that affected, of course, my family and my children. And and they're going to... Uh, St. Patrick's College, Strathfield by this time, and to San Sabina at Strathfield. And so we are Catholic school, very good Catholic schools. And, and I'm living at Strathfield. I'm li- li- not living for, I'm living in the family home by now. And we were contacted by Australian Story. The kids said, you've just got to go with it, you, you know, because it's a human rights thing. And so we did an Australian Story. The case was picked up in the UK and it was relied upon in the European Court of Human Rights uh, to, to, compel the UK government to reform its laws mm-hmm. uh, because the UK case had failed. Mm. Um, it then, it was picked up in, in the United States in several states and relied upon to to grant the right to marry to affirm people there. And so... Were you it, on the international speaking circuit? I, w- well, I took my son to Europe and we I spoke at, at several universities there at, at a UN convention and around the different places and to America. And we would turn up, I would take one of my children to each different thing because I wanted to be educated for them as well. And I remember my daughter, by the time we went to the big American convention down in Atlanta, my daughter and I both went to that and she was struck by, and so was I, of course, but uh, struck by people coming up to us at that conference out of the blue and saying, that case saved my life. I thought I'd never see my children again until I saw that case was publicised. Wow. And it was um, on several um, discovery channels and things like that dealt with it. And, um, and it was big news that someone with transsexualism could maintain a relationship. So I could be a father to my children, notwithstanding that I'd affirmed a female sex. Yeah. And I remember going to the family court on behalf of clients with transsexualism in property matters and trying to acclimatise uh, the family court, the good grace of the family court towards me enabled me to do this. 
acclimatise them to the fact that you could have female fathers and male mothers. So I guess the real significance of it from, you know, laying the, the path for the future is huge. In what, what respects did your practice take in cases uh, where difference and diversity were central, were paramount? Well, actually, uh, the fact is that um, once people with transsexualism had the right to marry in their affirmed sex, you didn't have to do any more of those. But the next major case came from parents seeing me about getting medical treatment for their newly teenaged, newly adolescent daughter who was assigned male at birth and who, but who had, since she was very young, classic story, been saying to all the world, but look, you don't get me. I'm really, I'm really a girl. I'm really female. And at that time, there's a whole lot of anxiety because there'd been a case called Re Alex in Victoria decided by the former Chief Justice of the family court, Alastair Nicholson. And uh, he is a, a good lawyer. But he'd been approached by the department who was looking after responsibility for child welfare in Victoria at that time, who had a child of ward of the state, who was an affirmed male adolescent, who was self-harming and becoming self-destructive. They approached the court and he and persuaded the judge that uh, to apply Marion's case and just to have the family court assume its parents' uh, patriarch jurisdiction. Just briefly explain what Marion's case stands for. It comes up a lot. Well, that was, in, the, uh, that was the case. This jurisdiction? Yes, it does. And um, so Marion's case was um, a decision by the High Court dealing with a, an application by the parents of a child with a severe intellectual disability who were seeking um, the permission of the court to have that child sterilised. And uh, the court decided uh, on a majority this was the kind of medical procedure that they termed special, a special medical procedure, in that it was not therapeutic. It wasn't for the therapeutic benefit of the child and therefore required court authorization because it was the first time that application had been made. It found its way to the high court and they, they characterized it. Mm. Uh, and so come at Realix, all the parties are telling the judge you have jurisdiction here to take a th to authorize this procedure because of Marion's case, because the treatment asked for is not therapeutic. It's just cosmetic. It's just to uh, help this child help feel better about himself. And because there was no understanding, there was notwithstanding that Kevin had been decided, and obviously filtered down the medical science about transsexualism. And there's almost like a complete divide between children's medicine and adult medicine. And so adult transsexuals seem to be a completely different thing. You, you couldn't actually draw, draw a direct comparison to uh, a child or an ad adolescent. Anyway, so my client's daughter, affirmed female daughter, had been approved for the new puberty suppressant medication. Now, this, this merely froze progress, so it didn't let normal the puberty progress. So it gave time for further diagnosis and the medical science was as soon as you remove the medication, puberty would progress. Mm. Right? There were some, some cons concerns about bone elongation, but they are overcome because later on, once hormones kicked in, 
then that was that was addressed. So it was a very benign kind of treatment that was available to to other children with who were diagnosed with intersex conditions every day of the week. But for this child going through Westmead Hospital, it was frozen. Her treatment was frozen. Now she's approaching puberty. And what she knew and the parents knew and the medical profession knew was that if it progressed and her body was masculinized, it would never be able to be changed. She'd be stuck with that for life. And if she was going to live as a female, that's a very difficult thing. These children become incredibly distressed, self-harming, self-destructive, can't go to school, bullied at school. They are just red flag, red flag kids. And when they tell their the the, psych, the child psychiatrist their background and their story, they're all the same. They're all from as long as I can remember. This is how I felt. And then the doctors go, "Oh, it's a very difficult decision." And these kids are saying, and the parents are saying, "No, it's not. It's the only decision we can make because our child's dying in front of our eyes." Uh, and judges are saying, "Oh, I'm uncertain about this." The children are not uncertain in the least. They're the ones who have certainty, and it's everyone around them. And the irony was, and why I would call it biological apartheid, was because the child in the next doctor's surgery, who was able to be labelled with an intersex condition, could receive this medication, no court approval at all. And yet the court said, because of Realix, we had to go to court and uh, and get court authorization. And so I'm before the family court in, in Parramatta. Fortunately, I came before a judge I knew who, who trusted me. And uh, we put on an urgent application for this. And this is before Jamie or anything like this. And this was in 2005. And on an urgent basis, before the involvement of the of DOCS or, or, or the Human Rights Commission, both against authorization, by the way, at that stage. And so the judge ordered on an interim basis before these other parties were joined, that the treatment happened. And had my client not got that interim order, at which the judge refused to reverse later, because we had the ev- medical evidence, the doctor was saying, for goodness sake, treat this child, otherwise she's going to suffer irreparable psychological and physical harm. Uh, anyway, so we, she, it could have been, it was ultimately delayed. Really fraught cases. Yeah, and I'm I'm basically saying to the family court, look, normally people are here to get your help, judge. You know, and, and, and I appreciate what my friends are saying, and normally this is a court where people are coming saying, please do this, please do that. Where My clients are coming here saying, please leave us alone. And you're running these cases yes. yourself. I, mean, yes. I think that's that's exceptional in itself because we do have a system in, um, in the family law jurisdiction of... Um, you know, barristers being instructed by solicitors. And so do you regard yourself in, in this area as having been a, a solicitor advocate in the cases that you've run? Well, that's what I, that's what, I, yeah. That's what you've been. Um, well, One of the things that we've missed in this is that, you know, you you told the story about working in Parramatta and working in, in Sydney, but you did actually move to the Hunter um, yeah. as and conduct a practice yeah. uh, in, as a sole, sole practitioner. These cases, it's fascinating and complex and we could talk for, you know, there are many cases that we could talk about. But Re Kevin really sort of was the case. It, and it, and from there, you know, you became a, a, a prominent, you, you, uh, your 
presence in this area of um, of diversity and sexual formation in, and how we deal with that in the law was cemented. Given all that you've done in this area, what advice would you give to people with difference who want to prepare and uh, go before the court to to run applications where they feel that they may not receive a good audience? It, it is absolutely crucial to uh, f- find legal practitioners to support you who aren't running their own agenda. So it is better to have an expert lawyer who comes to the process with an open mind who can look at the medical science and the law without their agenda being colouring it at all. Mm. Fortunately, things have progressed now through a series of cases, as I said, the final one being the full court decision in Marie Kelvin, uh, as well as the Bernadette's case that uh, that um, I, I brought, I helped the parents bring, where the children don't need to have court authorization now for phase one and two treatment. And phase three treatment, which is in adulthood, which is you can't have uh, general reassignment surgery into the adulthood. The importance of that treatment in adolescence is that the child progresses in their affirmed sex in a normal way and doesn't stand out and then isn't as prone to bullying. I think a firm that embraces diversity, that embraces difference, is where you should will we'll get the expertise that they need. But but it's they've got to be good litigators. That good litigators, but progressive to, social values. Exactly, but also open-minded, mm. so that they can, like I asked Kevin, how do you want to be spoken about to the court? He said, I want to be called a man. Now, at that up to that point, it would have been an None of the cases that have been run had called the the applicants man or woman. They would have called Kevin a female to male transsexual person, right? That's how he would have been called right throughout the trial. So we thought about that and we okay, let's we coined the term man of transsexual background. So in the end, he was called a man, and that honoured McClyde in that case, and it also got the message across to even my opponents. And, and the judge. But I think lawyers, as a, a general rule, really do wish to get a just result if they can. Once they come to understand, like after a series of these cases had been done, the, the, every attitude's changed and it became supportive of the result that, that, should have been, that should have been sought earlier in the piece. Yeah, well, you've certainly got so much to contribute uh, in this important area. And I understand that you've recently retired. I'm concentrating on doing up a trailer sailor boat at the moment. Um, <laughs> and looking after some grandchildren. Looking after some grandchildren. But I am interested in lawyers. I've got the most satisfaction speaking to young lawyers about embracing imperfection in themselves and in their legal practice. Mm. Because we're, we're, so much is expected of lawyers. We to get it right every time. There's tension in the courts. The, there's tension between the court's delivery of justice and the client's expectations. It's a very hard place to stand. Yeah, and and you've got, um, you know, you're an accredited specialist in this area. You've clocked up four decades, I think. I got sober in 1992. Yeah. And then transitioned in 1994. Wise words and lots of wise counsel to give. I'm an expert in imperfection. Well, I think you're an expert in many things. Rachel, thank you so much for coming along and introducing us at least to some very difficult and complex and important 
law and cases and uh, us in the legal profession owe you a great deal. Well, we've covered a lot of ground and I think you've been a champion in trying to keep us moving along, Catherine, but it's been a pleasure. Well, it's absolutely been a pleasure too. It always is. Huge thanks to Rachel Wallbank, recently retired family lawyer and accredited specialist in family law, for taking the time to share her groundbreaking work with us on this episode of Law Matters. I'm Catherine Henry, Principal at Catherine Henry Lawyers. And if you'd like to find out more about how my team can help you or your loved ones navigate some of the more non-traditional areas of family law, please do get in touch. If you're enjoying this podcast, please make sure you subscribe and it'd be really great if you'd leave a review. This podcast was produced by Pod and Pen Productions.